audiences and critics agree, Aliens is the wild roller coaster ride moviegoers have been waiting for all summer. They're right outside the door. The best action film of the year. Unbelievably exciting. Sheer exhilaration. Fasten your seatbelts for the ultimate summer action film. Aliens will blow you through the back wall of the theater. Sigourney Weaver. Aliens. Rated R. Now playing everywhere. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering every single horror movie, one movie, one franchise at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry. Jerry, how are we feeling tonight? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm excited about this episode. But feeling, I'm ready to jump right in. Feeling rah-rah for this episode? I am. Hoorah. Awesome. <laughs> Hoorah. So, um, and we're really excited. We have a returning guest with us tonight. Uh, we... Got a chance to speak with Jessica from the Spinsters of Horror um, back when we had a little uh, spotlight episode during Women in Horror Month. And I think we asked Jessica you to come on for this specific episode probably like 10 months ago, back when Jerry and I were actually planning out what we were going to do next. Yeah, um, and I'm like, I think that's in the spreadsheet. So um, <laughs> luckily we saved those things. And uh, welcome back, Jessica from Spinsters of Horror. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Right. So I always like to know, starting, uh, edit that part out, I always like to start by asking, what was it that drew you to the particular franchise at Entry we're doing? Like, what was it about Alien and Aliens that really called to you? Would you want me to start or? Yep. Okay, sure. Well, well, for me, it was actually, um, I actually stayed away from the Alien franchise for a very long time, just because I, and Kelly and I talked about this in one of our episodes, I'm terrified of space. I'm terrified mm -hmm. of aliens. And it's something that really gets under my skin. So I remember growing up with like pulp culture and everything, like seeing what the xenomorph looks like and knowing about it, but just never venturing in. And it wasn't until almost like six years ago, I had a coworker tell me I needed to watch both those films because he would always call me Ripley. And I'm like, I don't understand. Why do you call me Ripley? Like, who is Ripley? He's like, oh, you need to watch these two films and then come back to me and I'll tell you why I call you Ripley. So I did. And at first it was like, oh, you're calling me Ripley because I'm a crazy cat lady because she goes back and saves her cat in the first one. He's like, no, no, no. Did you watch the second one? I'm like, no, no, not yet. He's like, watch that one. And then I watch it and then I'm like, oh my goodness, I just love Ripley. And I fell in love with the series from there. Still terrifies me. The second watch around was, uh, was scary <laughs> at, no. at certain parts. Yeah. See, that's so funny because we talked a little bit last time with um, Lindsay about Ripley's character and how when we think about her in pop culture, this is the Ripley that we think about. Yes, like, we do. The more cerebral um, Ripley of the first one, we don't really remember quite as much as we do the James Cameron version of what came after that where we have like Ripley the ass kicker. Yeah. Well, what's kind of interesting, I, I think, I mean, not jumping too far into Alien 3, obviously, but I, I, what I love about Alien 3, and I, I guess I'll, I'll talk more about it in that episode, is that that version kind of felt like the combination of, like you said, the more cerebral take on Ripley in the first film and the more like, you know, ballsy, you know, go get them. I'm going to shoot every motherfucker one, mm -hmm. you know, in Aliens. I love Alien 3 is kind of like a, uh, a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And then by resurrection, she's throwing basketballs at people's heads. <laughs> Just so, you know, really. A little different, yeah. You know, going to the completely different route at that point. Yeah. Um, 
but by the time, like you said, like this about six years ago before you would actually sit down to watch some of the alien entries, by that time, like you were still like really well-versed in horror by then, correct? Uh, I, w- I was in my journey. I was okay. getting better. Like I was still not as well-versed as I have gotten over the last couple of years. But mm-hmm. I think I was just, I was well-versed enough because I've known people and I've had friends and Kelly being my friend for 20 years. Like mm-hmm. we always, she would talk to me about horror. So I had a knowledge. I had some understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the journey a little bit. I am always interested because for me, it was being a really little kid and having my grandmother pay me like five bucks to stay up late at night to watch oh movies God. with her. Nice. And, then, <laughs> and then like checking out all these like occult books from like the public library in our town that in the kids section had like this section on ghosts and vampires and yeah, witchcraft yeah, yeah. that was amazing. What was it like for you? Like what, you know, you mentioned Kelly, uh, your co-host on the, um, I spit on your podcast show in co-runner of the Spencers of Horror site, but being your friend for two decades and yeah. you almost have to like horror movies when you have <laughs> someone that is pulling you along for 20 years. Pretty um, much. Yeah. What, what was your journey like? My journey actually started very late in life. Um, I grew up in a, like a strict Roman Catholic household. So mm-hmm. to even think about horror or to bring like, I once brought in an Anne Rice novel into the house to read and I got in a lot of trouble for that. So nice. I myself had always had an interest in like the supernatural. And so I would sneak in things to read. Like I snuck in Fear Street. I snuck in R.L. Stein. Like I was, so for me, horror really started out with literature. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't have the same experience as other friends, like I remember the first time I ever saw um, Bram Stoker's Dracula and the scene where Gary Oldman transforms into the bat, I was terrified. Mm-hmm. You know, I was terrifying. Consider when I was younger, but considering where I am now, I look at that scene and be like, no, that's that's totally not scary at all anymore. It's interesting. So it really wasn't until later in life that I started watching horror movies, and because I was had a bit of an overactive imagination. Um, I get scared really easily. So I'd always stick, have my friends make us watch the B horror movies. So that's where like my love of like B horror movies and then films from the 1940s and fifties, because I was able to like enjoy the storyline and enjoy the effects, but not get totally scared and at la- and also have good laughs with people. Um, but then it, it got later in life when I needed, like, I need to watch something that scares me. I've been reading, I've got the imagination. And of course, like being friends with Kelly, right. We had this, Whenever I would go visit her, I'd be like, once a year, Jessica watches a horror movie. Any horror movie of her choice. So I would always be the one to get the picks. And then I watched like Nightmare on Elm Street and Candyman. And slowly started like, you know, wetting my tongue and getting more into the genre and like craving more and then wanting that feeling to be scared. And then I jumped. Then I just like, just one day, I think it was like one year, I just decided to jump full in. I just been since then like watching, reading whatever I want, you know, to try and expand my knowledge and now doing the podcast to talk more about it. Cause I definitely think it's a genre that has so much to say. And that's what I really love about it. Was there, was any, it? Particular, oh, was there any particular movie that it finally clicked into place and said, okay, this is it. Like this the witch. is the witch. Okay. The witch. <laughs> yeah. Kind of bit obvious, but it was uh, the movie that I was just like, this makes sense like mm-hmm. what's happening i love this the tale of how they take both uh, historical facts and then uh, combining it with the folklore and just telling like this beautiful uh, story but at the same time too terrifying because it, it places itself in um those real shoes of that history of uh, witchcraft and um 
And so then I just like, okay, well, and then I started listening to the faculty of horror and then hearing their takes on the films. I was like, wait a second, Mm -hmm. you know, having an academic background like I do, I was like, this is really interesting to me. I love that there's this commentary. So I, you know, started like reading and like reading more, like going beyond like the horrid magazine, just be like, oh, they're just talking about these really great things. And like, oh, this article is actually talking about, um, you know, uh, feminism in the Summer Party Massacre. This is super interesting. I need to learn more. Awesome. Jerry, were you jumping in there? No, I was just going to ask, like, was it kind of exciting to finally kind of embrace, like, the the kind of fear aspects of it? Like, you know, in a way that maybe, like, early on when you were talking about, you know, watching the B-movies because they wouldn't, like, you know, terrify you. Was, like, when you finally got to that point where you kind of embraced it, was it, like, kind of exciting to do that? Yes. Yes. Like, I would look forward to the next horror movie because I want to feel that adrenaline, that fear, but also, like, kind of embrace a part of myself that I kind of kept you know, away, pushed away for a long time because maybe mm-hmm. I was too scared. No, totally. I mean, I, that's wonderful. I come from uh, a very uh, abusive childhood background. Mm-hmm. And for me, getting into horror, uh, it, I think it was the fear that made me so, uh, that, that kind of drew me to it because I wanted to feel something other than, mm-hmm. you know, what was coming later that night. So I, yeah. I think it, it's interesting how like the fear could either push people away initially or like, you know, really excite them later on in life. I, I'm so interested in that. It's interesting. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree with you. And I feel like for me, I've had a lot of healing through the horror mm-hmm. genre with a lot of stuff uh, from my own past. And so I, mm-hmm. I find it as a genre that's very comforting at the end of the day. Totally. So let's take a journey. Now we talked about taking a journey. Let's talk about the journey it took to bring aliens to life. Um, Going back and in, in watching some of the documentaries and doing some research in this, it's is, is much as good as the finished product looks. It seems like it was a son of a bitch to bring this to screen. Like it was a really contentious shoot. It was Jim Cameron's like third movie uh, after Piranha 2 and The Terminator. Um, and he and his film crew just did not seem to get along. So what do we know about how this thing was brought to life? Well, I mean, Cameron was initially uh, brought on just to write, like, what, like, uh, the treatment for the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, the people at Fox, they were so just excited on what he turned in. And he didn't even turn in a full treatment or even a full script. Like, right. I, if, I'm, if I'm right, I think he wrote, like, 90 pages. Mm-hmm. And they, it was, like, unprecedented. You know, like, he turned in these 90 pages, and they were so interested in it. And they loved what he did so much that they were like, you know what? You need to go do this other project, take your time, come back after you're done. And, you know, if the rest is as good as these 90 pages, we'll even let you direct it, which is unheard of at that time. And it got pushed back even further because when Cameron was ready to go, uh, Dino De Laurentiis pulled an option card for Schwarzenegger and said, Mm, hey, look, you know, you got to make Conan the Destroyer, Um, which pushed back. Yeah, of course. I mean, anytime. Yeah, oh boy. Um, So the Terminator got pushed back about a good six to eight months as well. But from what I understand, like Cameron took that time to take the 90 pages, which I think he said were like the first two acts of the movie, if even mm-hmm. that, if it was not even two complete acts and said, let's really like, you know, flesh this thing out and get to it at that point. Um, no, totally. That and like, I, I think it's interesting that they had this idea or, you know, they, they gave them the statement that like, you know, well, if the Terminator ends up okay, you know, we'll, we'll give you the job. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine being those execs 
watching the fucking Terminator for the first time. <laughs> like, I just revisited that movie this week, and holy shit is one of the best, and I will say horror films. It is oh, yeah. definitely a horror film to me. It is one of the best horror films of all time. And can you imagine being those execs being like, holy crap, this is what we have coming to us with aliens. You know, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, but it's interesting that they really only gave him like an $18 million budget to complete mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. So really, so he was working in like, it's like they're excited. They're like, yes, this is great. Do this. But we're only going to give you so much, much money because we're not 100% mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. What's really cool about that is that, I mean, Cameron coming from the Roger Corman school of mm-hmm. thought, you yes. know, when it comes to filmmaking, I think he was the perfect person you know, to give somewhat of a limited budget because, you know, coming from working on the Corman films, he knew exactly what to do, not just in a directorial sense, but he was definitely an artist, you know, like he had his hand in everything, you know, uh, I feel like this episode is going to constantly be me like saying like, I revisited this movie, but I watched uh, Escape from New York, I think yesterday. And I looked at those beautiful map paintings in the background and like James Cameron painted those. Mm-hmm. You know, like that is like, it's like striking gold with this movie. And yeah, the making of it was so painful for Cameron and everyone because there was such a disconnect. But like, man, it's such an exciting time to even like talk about, I think. Everyone that worked with Cameron on the film talked about like the exacting level of detail that he had in his vision. Like he didn't leave anything to chance and he pretty much had this movie made in his head before he even, you know, rolled like a a foot of film on it overall. So he would go to Stan Winston, he would go to the effects team and say, like, I think the ship is one thing. Like when they designed the ship, he was like, no, and this is all wrong. And here's why it's wrong. And he came back with these really detailed sketches that they then kind of put into place at that point. Um, He would... I mean, just down to the level of like one of the grip, one of the effects artists wasn't wearing gloves on the scene where the face hugger springs out of the camera. And he's like, go and get gloves because you're not going to be able to pull the cable hard enough if you're not protecting your hands right now. Like, why are you wasting my time mm-hmm. by not having gloves? Just that <laughs> insane yeah. level of detail. Yeah. But, but that level of detail caused a lot of friction on set between him and the British film crew. Yes, yeah. Well, I, I feel like even before that, I mean, that that kind of like, not arrogance, but like knowing exactly what he wants and being that kind of uh, artist that, you know, a, a lot of times if you're someone that has your hand in everything, you get kind of annoyed when other people are doing it. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff that you mentioned with the gloves. I mean, that went out through his whole career. I mean, Kate Winslet will not work with him again after Titanic. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it's it's interesting when, when an artist and a filmmaker is that hands-on, but I feel like it could also alienate people, which, I mean, even speaking on, you know, like the British crew, you know, when it came down to it, I mean, there was a whole, that whole like tea break thing. Like, mm-hmm. you, I, yeah, I, I see that you put that in the notes too. I was, I thought that was such a funny story. Mm-hmm. I mean, while they were while they were shooting, you know, the British crew were used to like this kind of relaxed setting of you know what came before. I mean, Ridley Scott ran a completely different ship than James Cameron. You know, they were used to that. You know, and James Cameron's so gung ho about getting stuff done now, and he wants it this way. And then out of nowhere, they'd have those tea breaks where the doors would open and people would walk in with you know tea and snacks, and people would just like you know, oh, break time. Right. I, I mean, especially when you have a director that just you know. He's having a limited budget. 
he's trying to prove himself. I mean, yeah, he made the Terminator, but this is still only his, you know, third film, you know, and he has to stop in the middle of shooting aliens for a tea break. Like I can right. understand why that would be frustrating. And it's not just that people would stop filming. It's like everything he set up, like all the smoke and steam would go like rushing out of these giant open doors. <laughs> and this like tiny, I just picture this like tiny bent over, like former British Butler that's doing this in his retirement, maybe two days a week, like rolling a little hand cart with like tea and scones coming in and everybody just dropping camera and running to it and everything he set up just being like well that's wasted yeah yeah and then on, you know on top of that he was known to have a bit of a temper so right mm-hmm. so then he lashes out and they get, they get upset and he get upset but it was nice to know that eventually he won them over with because how clear he was about his vision mm-hmm. and because he had a lot of technical tricks in his back pocket that help him keep the but keep things under budget mm-hmm. which was really surprising to them mm-hmm no, totally. Absolutely. But it was, uh, and I guess from my understand too, like his first camera, the, the first assistant director, like refused to light things the way Cameron wanted because Cameron wanted just natural lighting when they were going through like the cat cones overall to kind of give it that spooky, mysterious look. And the assistant director was saying like, well, why would I build these really intricate sets and then not light them and show them? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And he just refused to listen to Cameron until he would get tossed off a set. So things like that would happen. But eventually he did win them over. And I think the, and and really like the result is on screen. Like I think um, Cameron's vision was realized fully on screen. You can kind of see why he wanted things to be the way he, he did overall. It's also interesting that like, like I, I don't see how Fox would have had a huge issue with Cameron's temper, even though I, I feel like it's very unnecessary. You know, like the, like the whole Alien series, like there's kind of a reputation with him having having these kind of like not larger than life, but very like you know directors that just will not take shit. I mean, between James Cameron and David Fincher, like I, like I don't know if it's true, but I read a story once where David Fincher like stapled somebody's cell phone to the exit door because it went off once. You know, like, I can't that. Like, it's just, it's nuts. I mean, you you get what you kind of hire at that point. But I mean, I, I think that after, you know, Terminator was done and people kind of saw what he was capable of doing and, and saw like the talent and like the kind of, uh, the kind of classiness of what kind of film they were making because of Cameron being so headstrong in the way he gets it. I think that it definitely helped turn it around. Mm-hmm. One of the real battles that Cameron fought was ensuring that Sigourney Weaver came back for this movie. Um, He was adamant that the series was less about the xenomorphs themselves and more about the journey of Ripley. So he was insistent that Sigourney Weaver came back. And from what I understand, like when he sent her the script, like she really liked it. She was like, this is great. Like she saw what he was going for right away. And she was also comfortable enough by that point because she was no longer working on her first move movie. By this time, Weaver is a pretty big star. And she's like, look, here are all these little inconsistencies in the character that you've written in that you got to change these. And Cameron, to his credit, as stubborn as he could be, said, oh, all right, well, you know the character better. So let's, let's make these changes. And he really worked hand in hand with her. Um, the other thing about it too is Fox did not want to pay Sigourney Weaver. 
what she felt she was owed to come back. And they told Cameron, you need to write another script, except Ripley won't be a part of it. And Cameron put his foot down and said, it doesn't work for me. See, that's awesome. Because, you know, a lot of days, a lot of times you get these directors that are trying to prove themselves, trying to, you know, prove that they have a place at the table when it comes to, you know, what they have to offer. And they would take those compromises just for the gig, you know? And I've always respected that about James Cameron when it comes to this movie, is that he saw early on, like, what the heart of the series was. And I I agree 100%. I love the Xenomorphs. I think it's one of the the most beautifully designed like creatures in film around. But that being said, when I think of alien or aliens or any of those films, I don't think of the Xenomorph. I think of Ripley. I think of everything that that character embodies. And uh, I I think that was such a good move Mm -hmm. on his part to kind of put his foot down. A hundred percent. Absolutely agree with that. And I think now's a good point, maybe to transition a bit. Maybe we sold Ripley a little bit short in our discussion of Alien. And I think now might be a good time to look at how this character evolved uh, from Alien to Aliens and how it really cemented her as not just like a, a famous figure in horror movies, but really like one of the transcendent pop culture figures of the 80s and onward oh totally sounds jumping it yeah so weaver calls her character basically rambolina when she's doing (laughs) the press for this movie um she was a little bit surprised by how much she was going to be involved in like shooting weaponry and um you know fighting in this movie she was actually a bit uncomfortable Um, with the focus on guns in this movie like Sigourney Weaver is very much like a um, pro gun control she's very much for gun control and has uh, advocated and donated to those causes although she said as a lot of us would like it was a hell of a lot of fun to go out and shoot on the firing range and practice in safe conditions but she was surprised with how action-oriented this take was for was for her when compared to the first movie yeah and I almost feel like I'm like okay like I really want to talk about Ripley but then you bring up that really good point about how action-oriented and then always this Mm -hmm. age-old question about aliens is this more of an action film or is this more of a Mm -hmm. horror film Um, oh we'll get there okay yeah definitely um for sure but uh Ripley's character is her journey in this film is really interesting um from the first to the second one and where she goes from the very beginning to the film by the end of the film. And I just, um, we all look to that character of Ripley throughout the entire series too. And then constantly see this evolution. Sorry, someone jump in, please. <laughs> no, no, please. The floor is yours. Um, to me, like what you said at the beginning of the film, like she's very much a traumatized character at yes, the start of this movie. Yes, uh, she, you know, you clearly can be experiencing PTSD from the fact that when she wakes up on the ship, she's waking up and it's just yesterday. Like it was the next day for her, mm-hmm. everything she experienced um, on the Nostromo to it's, they're like, no, it's been 57 years. Right. Now they have to tell her like, you've been out there for 57 years. This, you know, what we don't really actually also believe what you experienced, which I thought was super interesting. That whole scene where she's explaining to the corporation, I'm assuming government leader saying, this is what I was out there. This is why my crew is dead. And they don't believe her. And I remember thinking if she was Kane, would they not believe her? Would they believe him because he's a man? They would be like, oh, we should investigate this where they clearly dismiss mm-hmm. her. 
Well, it's, it's very, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead, jump in. No, I was going to say, to me, reading it, like, revisiting it recently, it, that, that scene in particular felt very much like that day and age is, uh, like, whoa, what were you wearing? Yeah, you know, exactly. Like she, had, she had fact after fact of what happened, and they always made it about her and how she was at fault in their eyes. And it's what's funny is, like, we, we talked a lot about Alien and kind of, like, the themes that are just as, that ring just as true, uh, you know, th- in this day and age. But Aliens, I think, also holds a lot of that, too. Yes. You know, like, they very much try to make Ripley, I mean, they take away her, her, her license. They do all these things to strip everything away from her for something that was not her fault, because that's an easy target for them. It's yes. easy to pin it on, her, on Ripley instead of taking ownership of the fact that they were 100% at fault for that. Exactly right, and, that, and that's what I had thought too when watching that scene. I was just being like, if it was uh, Kane in here and he was saying the same thing, they would have been like, "Oh, we should probably investigate this," or be like, "They're already aware," and they just pull them off to the side later and be like, "Look, what you saw, you didn't really see. Here's mm-hmm. some money, set you all up. You're good, right?" But in the case of Ripley, they were like, "No, you're crazy. That never happened. We don't know what you're talking about." Oh yeah, and there's a colony out there now, so don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Right, we got it. So. Yep, they're willing to do that to her until they need her again. And then they immediately kind of bribe her and get her and, and um, almost like guilt her into coming along for the excursion back to LV-426. What I thought was interesting this time around was Ripley decides to go because she is under the impression that they're not there to kind of capture and study the aliens, but to basically wipe them out. So. Yes. For Ripley, like this was a way to kind of end her trauma once and for all um, and really put it behind her by going back and taking the fight to the alien this time. I think when it it comes to the theatrical cut, I mean, just in my opinion, I feel like that's not as fleshed out as it could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, How I read it is it comes off like, you know, they took away everything from her. She, she, you know, wants to do this to get that back. But I also think that what you're saying is is correct too. I, I feel like she does feel this sense of wanting to maybe not revenge per se, but she really wants closure in that. And if they're going to wipe them out, yeah, definitely. But mm-hmm. I think the director's cut is what really just makes what you're saying stand out even more. Because in, you know, any listeners that haven't seen the director's cut, I'm going to spoil that right now. So I'm sorry. But in the director's cut, it's revealed that Ripley had a daughter. And, you know, she was supposed to come back from the events of the first one, you know, celebrate her daughter's birthday. She promised her daughter she would be there and all this stuff. And because of the kind of snafu with the whole, like, cryosleep thing, she's been asleep for over 50 years, her daughter's already gotten sick and died Mm -hmm. just while Ripley was asleep. I mean, as a parent, that is soul-crushing to wake up from. And, and, And like you said, you know, like, it's it's the next day for her you know like it's yeah. it feels like the same thing so one day she has a daughter in her head and then she wakes up and it feels like the next day to her and suddenly her daughter got old and died without her there you know so i feel like while at first maybe she's like i want nothing to do with this you know but yeah i'd like to get my license back but at the same time with that kind of subplot added for the director's cut hell yeah she'd want to go in there and you know destroy what took everything away from her because it's not just you know the the it's not just the the Weyland-Yutani 
corporation that stole things from her. It's very much the xenomorphs. And I, I feel like it is a vendetta for her. And it also, I think that that deleted subplot, I think really helps show so many things that would come into play later on in the film as, you know, regarding Ripley and, uh, you know, Newt as well. Mm-hmm. For sure, 100%. I remember sitting here, because I watched the theatrical, but I, I've seen the directors. And so I remember thinking like, oh, Burke keeps saying, and he keeps saying families to her, families. And you, when you read the dialogue, and you're just like, that doesn't make any sense. Why do we say families? You know, is he just trying to play to her, like, na- suppose, like our natural feminine instinct to be like, oh, of course I want to go and help you to save women and children and stuff like that. But then you're like, no, she lost her daughter. So of course she's like, I need to get revenge against these aliens because they took her away from me. Oh, totally. And like, what does she see when she gets there? A scared little child that, yes. that just needs a parent, needs somebody to protect her. So in a way, I mean, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too far, but in a, in a way that's kind of like, to me, the way I read it, it felt like it was almost like redeeming herself. You yeah. know, it, it, was, it was showing that, you know what, I am going to be here. I am going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you from everything coming at you. And I think that is just profound to watch. So, I mean, when I watch the film, every single time I watch the director's cut, and I, I feel like it's flushed out so much more, even Ripley's journey just in this film. I like watching Ripley and Newt interact with one another because I see Ripley looking at Newt almost as like a miniature version of herself, like mm. this little survivor, this yeah. young girl who when everyone else on the colony was absconded with by the aliens when her whole family has been like ripped apart like she was resourceful enough and had her wits about her enough to kind of hide gather resources and she'd stayed away for like over a month at that point if i remember correct right i mean it was more than a few weeks where she'd been able to stay down there on her own and then watching ripley interact with newt and say contrasting that with lieutenant gorman during the scene where Gorman is trying to get information from her. And he's completely oblivious of the fact that this like girl is traumatized, that this girl is scared um, that, you know, she's been through the shit and she has this guy yelling in her face and he has no idea how to um, interact with her. And all it takes is just, you know, Ripley being a little bit more, gentle a little more diplomatic and a little showing a little bit more kindness to her um to get newt to open up a bit and show that you know that ripley was someone that can be trusted well, oh like totally her, well kind of like also like teasing her like you would do like your little girl or your little or your your niece or nephew right you'd be like oh there's a dirt there's a there's a clean face under all this dirt right yeah. and you're just like mm-hmm. she's definitely taking on that mother role right instantly like we know right from the get-go the group kind of assigned that role to ripley when mm-hmm. they called her over when they first discovered newt like hey ripley come <laughs> like mm-hmm. deal with child <laughs> and and, um, but we see that, you know, carry on with her that she's like, okay, like I'm, you know, she starts to become very motherly and there's lots of instances throughout the film where she makes, she makes sure that the child's safety is foremost in her mind. Put your seatbelt on. Don't look at the light. Don't see the carnage in mm-hmm. front of you. Yeah. Does that I, lessen mm-hmm. Ripley a little bit as a character at all? Like, do we feel that like, that's something that had to be added in there? Like, oh, we need to give this female character, someone to protect and make her seem like a mom so that she's more relatable. Like we couldn't have her uh, be like Vasquez and just be like a complete badass that she has to also have someone to look out for. 
Well, I, I don't think that Ripley ever, I don't, I don't think she ever was a badass. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah like watching Alien, watching Aliens, I mean, you know, you see her and, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the, 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 co- not costume, the thing at the end, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, you know, the forklift like the, machine Yeah, thing? exactly. Yeah. That, you know, you, you think of that. You, you think of the, you know, get away from her, you bitch. Yeah. But to be honest, like, I, that always just felt weird to me. Yes. Ripley's not that. And I, I think that going on your point, uh, I, I do think that Ripley kind of sees herself in Newt as well. Yeah. Because when we meet Newt, or not when we meet her, but uh, when Ripley does, uh, you know, because in the director's cut, there's all the other stuff with Newt and her family. What happened to Newt is her entire family was slaughtered in front of her, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's left without anyone. And even though they bickered and they fought an alien, all of Ripley's co-workers, who, who were essentially her family in space for an extended amount of time, were yeah. slaughtered right in front of her. So I definitely, definitely agree with the fact that she sees herself in Newt. And I don't think that takes away from Ripley whatsoever. In fact, I feel that that character is made even better by it. And I'm not saying like, you know, every female character has to have a, a motherly aspect to it because, you know I, know, I know plenty of strong female people who don't have children who are just as badass and awesome as anyone else. I don't think that makes, you know, doesn't define someone. But I do feel like in Aliens, that really makes Ripley stand out from the people that are just like, you know, quote unquote badasses and there to like blow shit up. Mm-hmm. Well, she definitely goes into that. Um, she shows us that primal, uh, I want to say power or that. So you know how people talk about the situation where like, if a mother sees their child in danger, she will lift a car to get them out. Mm-hmm. We see that with, with Ripley, especially at the end where she's like, I will do whatever to save this child. Like, I am, I'm going mama bear mode on this alien. And I think that what's make her character also really interesting. It also sh- displays that ability that, you know, you can be a mother and you can be strong. You can be a mother and you can be a leader, right? Because leader takes charge, like uh, Ripley takes charge of that group. The moment Lieutenant Gorman has his breakdown and a pawn is killed, and she's just like, "Look, everyone, get your shit together. We got stuff to do. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this has to happen. This has to happen." She, you know, essentially Hicks gives her control, essentially saying, "Okay, we are following your plan." And I think it's great that we get that combined aspect of Ripley. Like, yes, you can be a mother and you can take on an, uh, an adopted child, but you can still be strong, and your everyone is your family. And you can still be a leader in those situations. Then I, I just think it's also really cool to see like Ripley against the queen. You know, it's, it's yes. kind of like, it's kind of like mom against mom in a lot of ways. Like I, I always, I, every time I watch it, I notice that and I, I just smile. It's just kind of like, you know, like which one's going to do it? Which one's going to beat the other one? It's kind of, it's fun to watch. Well, it was an interesting scene between the alien queen and Ripley at the end there where they're having this nonverbal communication and it's like a maternal thing. Like, you know, like Ripley looks at, her, at the eggs and the alien looks at the eggs and then Ripley shows the gun like, okay, like we're getting each other. You let me go. I won't hurt your eggs. And you know, right back and forth. And it's not until Ripley, you know, and I, I was thinking about this the other day again, I was like, so who, 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 who shot first? Cause all of a sudden an alien goes to pop up and that's when Ripley shoots the flamethrower and we're like, Oh, okay. So who was going to break that truth there? But it's, you know, it's this, um, nonverbal maternal communication a, a one species identifying to another species like how we're going to protect one another mm-hmm. it's, it's a moment very much to like the first alien it's the one time where ripley lets her anger get the better of her and it mm. almost costs her because the end of alien they could have very they could have very easily just all got on the um 
escape ship together and left the aliens of the Nostromo and said, okay, now you can send in the Marines and they can take care of it. But she was adamant that they were going to blow the ship up. Yeah. And that, you know, cost Parker and uh, Lambert their lives at that point due to just kind of the delay it took in terms of, of escaping here. Like she decides to go um, full Rambolina and she torches all the eggs and that causes the queen to rip out uh, and chase after them. And, and this time it doesn't, it doesn't really kill anyone, but it very much could have at that point where she knows that like it's the second she gets on the ship with um, Hicks and uh, Lance Hendrickson, um, that planet's going to blow. Like it's a race against time. So the queen is screwed no matter what. Yeah. There's no need to torch the eggs. Those eggs aren't going to have a chance to hatch and latch onto anyone that planet is going to be toast, but you know Ripley is one of the rare moments that she's consumed by her rage. Yeah, her but at, at the same time, like as as parents, like how many times have we done the same thing? You know, like I I'm fully I'm so guilty of somebody saying the wrong thing to my kid and me just like maybe overreacting a little bit. You know, my my son Dexter has autism and he was bullied a lot in mm. kindergarten and uh, in first grade years. And like that school hated me those years so much because mm. like I think, you know, like there was one point where like I went in to talk to the, the, the principal and there was like a police officer just in case. Like I, I was, I was, you know what I mean? Like, and I feel like the, the yeah, she's kind of think like not thinking clearly when she torches the eggs. But what happened to her that made her do that? Her daughter, her daughter was stolen because of all that shit in the first movie. That is, that is her, her, her child, you know? So that rage that any parent feels when something has happened to their child, like I could totally, it's not the smartest thing to do because yeah, it got other people killed. You know, I, I, I get that. You know, but at the same time, I think as a parent, like, I think any of us kind of would do that. Like, I would torch the eggs. Hell yeah. Well, I think, too, I think, yeah, it may have been an emotional reaction, but there could have been some calculation behind that. Like, she's already discovered twice that there's a corporation on Earth that is very interested in these aliens. So uh -huh. if she doesn't destroy them now, they're just going to send another crew in, and mm -hmm. it's going to be another loss of lives for a supposed greater cause right and so she's so there could be that other one she's like i just needed to destroy you like everything I, but i but i took it as the planet won't be there any longer because True. the core of it was going to detonate in a moment so you could send another crew out there but there would just be like space debris at that point for it so. it's, it could also have been just like a big middle finger to yeah. not just not just the Wayland yutani corporation but burke as well yes you know in the first film they had ash you know, and, and, you know, mother in the, in the second film, you have Burke and basically the corporation, like just full on the corporation. I think in a lot of ways it could have been just a middle finger. Like, really? Like you guys going to do this to me twice? Like, well, guess what? These are getting torched, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about the way Cameron treats Ripley and aliens is there's obviously a, mutual respect between Hicks and Ripley. And there's probably some attraction there because let's face it, it's Michael Bean uh, <laughs> in, the, in the 1980s. And like, yeah, of course, uh, you know, the man's hot. Um, but it's never consummated. It's never, you know, they never have a moment where he's like, oh, thank God you're safe. And they kiss and the music soars. 
like Cameron was really conscious of that. I think when he writes his female characters in some of his best movies, like um, um, Sarah Connor in Terminator Two doesn't have a romantic interest. Like she's just pure badass at that point. Ripley in this one, although there might be some attraction between her and Hicks, it's not. It's never a focal point, and it never comes between the two of them overall. Like Hicks immediately recognizes Ripley for what she is, like someone who might not have been a soldier, but has fought in wars. Um, And he recognizes that and respects her. And they treat each other like basically basically comrades as opposed to, you know, potential dating partners. No, totally. And I I think that's that's what makes uh, James Cameron like really great in in my opinion uh, when it comes to writing and that kind of stuff is that he doesn't feel the need to inject that kind of romance into his films unless it's completely warranted or definitely serves the plot. You know, like the only reason that Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese got together in that motel scene, I mean, because John Connor would not exist. You know, it, 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 it was very crucial to the story. Or Titanic, obviously, the whole movie's about that romance. You know what I mean? Like, I think that if Hicks and Ripley would have had some kind of romantic spin on it, I think it would have taken away from the story so much because there is that respect. And, like, you, you can tell that out of even all the soldiers, it's Ripley that Hicks, I think, not so much admires, but kind of trusts as far as, like, intellectual you know, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. Hicks knows, like you said, maybe Ripley wasn't a soldier, but she's seen her, her share of, you know, duty. She's seen the horror. She's seen the war. She's been through hell. She knows how to get out. And I think there's definitely a lot of respect going on. Yeah, she definitely stays very level-headed throughout a lot of the scenarios that happen each time, right? Where are we seeing, you know, the Marines had went in, they went in all very, you know, we've got this, these are bugs, we're going to take care of this. And then they just all fall apart when they actually see the alien. But she, the whole time, is able to keep her head no matter how um, tired she's getting or what's happening. Um, I really think it's interesting. I never really noticed about this uh, James Cameron's films until I watched this film again. And then I kind of went back to look at some of his other films and there's this whole idea around uh, his films about uh, withholding holding together the nuclear family mm-hmm. and i definitely thought that was interesting because by the end of aliens i was like yes we have like a little pseudo family with like ripley and hicks and newt because you know i didn't obviously we realize that um there was definitely that mother element between ripley and newt but then there's also this like maternal element that comes in with hicks and newt um, you see, like, those really sweet scenes, the one really sweet scene where, like, Newt's trying to, like, look around to see what's, like, you know, if she can see the map as well. And he, like, picks her up and puts them beside. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of, like, you know, chumming up. And he's very conscious about, you know, looking after her. And, then, like, the scene where they're escaping and Newt get, falls into the ba- into the barrels, right? like, like that, down into the, and, and, and the, the ship there. Um, uh-huh. and, like the uh, galley, yeah. The galley, yeah, where she falls below and you know, Ripley's like, I have to go back. And they're just about to escape. And he's not like every other guy. He's like, oh yeah, we know we, we got to leave her. Like, come on, come on, let's go. He's like, yes, of course, let's go. Let's find her. He's like, we don't. And then, you know, in the ship with Bishop, he's like, we do not leave, you know, until Newt's back. And he's like, so he's instantly taking on this kind of parental role, uh, father role for Newt as well. So they're like, oh, well, this is like interesting little family that's happening. Yeah. You know, or by the end of the film, you know, we see uh, Newt call Ripley mommy and then the very last cryogenic uh, shot is like of Hicks and Newt on either side mm-hmm. so seeing that again uh, made me realize how how moving 
the beginning of Alien 3 is. Just, mm. you know, thinking about that transition. Yeah. God damn you, David Fincher. <laughs> no, what's funny is, like, your point about uh, Cameron, you know, and, and kind of the nuclear family thing. I think it's funny that, like, Cameron's definitely like that. And David Fincher's kind of definitely the opposite. You know, whether it's like, oh, you know, these characters you loved at the end of Aliens, you know, at the beginning of Alien 3, hey, they're dead. Or like, or even yeah. like Seven, Seven, the end of Seven, you're just like, oh. Oh, yes. Well, to be fair. There's, there's a wife's head. <laughs> to be fair about Seven, knowing what we know about um, Gwyneth Paltrow, I think... <laughs> I think every movie should end with Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. Even if she's not in the movie, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you got Disney Plus, have an unedited version with like, it ends with the Seven Dwarfs holding up Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. That or you open the box, that or you open the box and it's not her head, but it's one of those like, what, $200 candles she sells? Sure, one of those two. (laughs) Oh my God, what if like, think of this for a limited edition product from Goop. You have a Gwyneth oh, Paltrow candle that's like the sh- molded in her head, and oh, it comes in this Lord. box. Oh my God! Print the money. I should. So you're, <laughs> you're not you're not a member of her fan club. I take it. Oh, I I, just not a fan of Gwyneth Paltrow. Just, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Just not a fan. Hey, do you know this is um, the girl who played Newt, um, Carrie Hen? This mm-hmm. is her only movie. This is her only acting credit. Really. And she, she's good in it. Yeah. Do you know why she quit? Uh-oh. Because James kids, Cameron? <laughs> kids at James Cameron would just scream at her for out. Oh, no, he did not do that. Um, no, when she went back to school, kids teased her for being in a movie. What? So she's like, so I think she's a school teacher now. Yeah, like as a very normal kind of like nine to five life. She's like, yep, just wasn't for me. Oh, wow. And she's really good in this movie. You're absolutely right. Like, she's fan- fantastic a, in this. For a kid in a movie, yes, she is. Because, like, I watch films where I, I don't always enjoy some of the child actors in it. But for mm-hmm. Aliens, like, I, I don't mind Newt at all. I think she's an integral character. So I love yeah, her. Yeah, absolutely. So, Shout out to her brother really quick, who was cut from the theatrical. But he's Aww. in the director's cut. Terry Hinn's poor little brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another big change besides the depiction of Ripley from Alien to Aliens is also just the tone of the movie. Um, You go from, now James Cameron said, James Cameron is on record saying, I didn't make a horror movie, I made a terror movie. I think Alien is very much the terror movie and this is very much like a fun action movie. What do we think of this change in tone? Uh, You know, I, I think that it's a good one. You know, I wouldn't want just another Alien because I think Alien is just so special to me that it's kind of mm-hmm. one of a kind. And I kind of like when movies do that. I remember loving The Collector. And I went to the theater opening night to see The Collection, the second one. And the first thing that popped in my head was Aliens. Because, you know, the first Collector is very much kind of like a saw, dark mm-hmm. horror film. And the second one's just all out guns, soldiers going after the killer and all this stuff. I like that shift. It's, it, I don't consider it horror at all. You know, like, but at the same time, I feel like it's a good extension of the first movie. And I, I, I really enjoy when sequels do their own thing. I mean, I'm really glad that, you know, they didn't sum up the Xenomorph as, you know, led by a senior citizen cult involving like the cult of Thorn. 
know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I do like that it, I, I, Ooh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, it, yeah, I'm glad that the xenomorph wasn't a worm going from body to body. Oh, uh, awesome. <laughs> but I, I do like the, the switch in this one. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting watching it. I like, I, I have like, I, I like this movie and I don't have the same too because I love the horror aspect of uh, Alien. And I love how in this movie you get those, steam, those scenes still that really creep mm-hmm. you up and make you like, oh, like especially the scene when like the the Marines first come upon the aliens and they don't see them, but you see them like slithering down. And you're like, oh no, I can't handle this. So, but I, for me, when it became really action oriented, it sometimes would take me out of that creepiness feeling and just be like, mm-hmm. yeah explosions and and things are happening and lots of guns and oh that alien got ran over by a truck it kind of looks funny because i'm not used to seeing the aliens yeah. i felt like the fear around the alien was taken away because we mm-hmm. see that we see too much of them and i always totally. like doing less is more no i i agree 100 percent. i i think what i love so much about alien is how you really just didn't know what was coming at first that that was scary and when you did finally get a glimpse of the xenomorph a little bit it was mostly in the shadows, yeah. you know, and as the film goes on, you see a little tiny bit more and more and it's still scary. But like, I've always thought the switch from alien and a- to aliens, and I don't mean to compare those movies to what I'm about to say now and as far as quality, but it's kind of like the switch from Jaws all the way to Jaws the Revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes Jaws so scary is how little you see that it's mostly in your head. You fill in the yeah, blanks. Yeah. Whereas Jaws the Revenge, you have a, a shark roaring, jumping up, biting a lady on a banana boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, where's the magic? Where's yeah. the mystery? Where's any of that? And I'm not saying that Aliens is a bad movie, but I, I, I think sometimes seeing too much takes me out of it. You yeah. almost can't replicate what you did in Alien the second time around. Because by this time, the audience knows what the alien is. Yeah. And it's very much what is putting the butts in the seat. Like they want to see more of it. So the rule of the sequel is you have to have more of it. I mean, it's like you go from like, it's like you said, Jaws, Jaws, the Revenge, like Rocky to Rocky 2, like the fight gets more ridiculous. By Rocky 4, like Rocky is taking on all of communism in the boxing ring. You know, like you almost have to keep those stakes escalating or the audience is going to lose interest in and see what the next, whatever the next big thing is. And well, it's also kind of cool that, I mean, Rocky takes on communism and in the next movie he takes on John Wayne's grandson in the street, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason why Rocky V doesn't really exist. You know, there's a reason why every copy of Rocky V should get the seven treatment and yeah, just be yeah. buried. Oh, such a bad movie. But I think uh, with, like, Aliens, I think there's also, there was this expectation around Cameron, too. Like, people just saw the Terminator. Yeah. So they got to see Aliens. They know that Cameron's attached to it. But they're going to get what they want. They're going to get their, their one, they're going to get their one-liners. They're going to get those, like, crazy scenes that is, like, intense, like, build-up. And then this huge, impactful scene that leaves you walking out of here. you be like, ah, you remember when you saw this? And, yeah, that was so cool, right? And so we get that with Alien, too. And we all know, like, you know, the one-liner from Hudson, you know, game over, man, game over. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So people are like, yeah, we know we're getting an action flick with aliens. And like you said, it has to be bigger. It has to be better. It has to be crazier somehow. I think the genius of it, too, is it doesn't allow you to make immediate comparisons to Ridley Scott's alien. Or at mm-hmm. least if you're going to make comparisons, they're on different planes. Because you can't compare 
alien to aliens as horror movies. You cannot say, well, what, which one actually works better in this type of genre? Because they work in different genres, you have yeah. to judge them not really against each other, but against like other action movies of their time and horror movies of their time. And Aliens is very much in line with some of the best action movies of yeah. that era. Like, you know, it's very much like, I mean, Ripley, it's really like die hard in space in a lot of ways because Ripley is not like, to your point, Jerry and Jessica before, like she's an every woman. Like she's not a superheroine. Like she's very much John McClane in space. With glass in his feet. That was an absolutely ridiculous comparison. <laughs> I'm debating whether to keep that in. Oh, please do. Yes. I, know, I know what you mean, though. I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Uh, you know, Aliens came out in a time, you know, full of commando, full of mm-hmm. Rambo, full of, I mean, you know, to a lesser extent to most, but even greater to me, Cobra. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, like it, it's definitely a product of its time. And I don't even mean that in a, as a negative, uh, in a negative way. It, def- it works for that time. And I, I think that it does its own thing and it does it really well. Uh, you know, it's not alien, it's aliens. And, and I think it succeeds so much being its own thing. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about the fact that it's almost like a video game and that there are a multitude of aliens you're going up against at this point? And then the movie ends with like, you know, like the alien queen, which is like oh. King, it's kind of like King Koopa at the end of Super Mario Brothers. Like you get Organon at the end of The Legend of Zelda. Like this very much feels like a video game movie where you have like a couple, you have your level in the factory where the aliens come at you. Then you have the level when you're in the base and the aliens come at you. And then you have to escape the face hugger. And then it ends with um, fighting the big, you know, the queen at the end. Well, you're kind of wiped by the end. And I mean that in a good way. You know, like during this whole quarantine, my wife and I, we've been playing Borderlands 3 a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's those levels where there's like 30 guys on screen and you're like, holy shit, mm-hmm. I'm going to get through this. And you do. And then there's a big boss at the end that you're like, oh my God, I'm going to be doing this for three hours. And like you feel wiped, but at the same time, like you get this rush of adrenaline. And I think Aliens is so good at doing that. Mm-hmm that it does kind of feel like overkill at times when there's so many aliens on screen that it kind of feels like, well, where's the danger? Because there's just so many. It's just like, okay, they're going to get through that and there's going to be a new set and so on and so on. So I understand that. But at the same time, what Cameron does with that, with having that many aliens, he keeps your adrenaline going like a hundred miles an hour. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the end showdown, you're white, but you're so interested still. I, I, I think it's great. I think it's great too. I actually didn't even think about that until you're bringing it up, but yeah, it actually really does play out like a really good video game. And I think that's super interesting to look back at the film and the way and kind of like how, you know, uh, video games and film, in sorry, inform cinema and cinema informing video games, that back and forth relationship. Mm -hmm. And there was a really great aliens arcade game that came after this. That was basically the whole movie with a gun. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's very much the same thing. Like I used to spend so much of my allowance playing that. I have never seen that. Oh, it's great. I remember Alien versus Predator on the Jaguar. Yeah, that's good. Uh, uh, yeah, Aliens had like a shoot 'em up game mm-hmm. in the arcade. It was it was 
basically kind of like the Terminator 2 game mm-hmm. where there's like this big, massive fucking gun, you know, mm-hmm. that you got to hold the whole game. Mm. But yeah. So let's talk about the lovable grunts of this movie at this point, because we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Ripley and how it was made, but what a lot of people remember about this movie is going to be like the Marine Corps basically getting sent down. And before there was Starship Troopers, like there was basically this crew of folks hunting bugs. Um, It's a huge change from Alien where you have just an everyday blue collar crew that's completely over their head to some well-seasoned fighting machine that's well-armed taking on this hostile force. Well, what's cool about that is by the time that all of the soldiers show up, there's also, there's already that camaraderie between them mm-hmm. that I think it adds to the story that Ripley feels like an outsider, that she has to earn their respect because they already mm-hmm. have respect because they've been through how many missions together. Yeah. And I, I think that the choices as far as actors that, in, that uh, you know, inhabit those roles, it's great. I mean, we talked about Michael Bean. I mean, I don't understand how that guy was never like a list on like level of like Tom Cruise kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like he gave some of the best performances of all time. Even, I mean, I don't know why I say gave because I mean, he's still around, but mm-hmm. you know, like when I see tombstone, I don't think of Val Kilmer. I think of how fucking badass Johnny Ringo was, you know, oh, come on, or, come on. No, I'm serious. I I'm serious. Come on. A hundred percent. You're like, God damn it, the show's canceled. But like <laughs> that, The Abyss, I mean, so many movies, Michael Bean just kind of not steals it, but he's just impossible mm-hmm. not to watch. Uh, when I joined Icons of Fright, I think like, I don't know, like eight or nine years ago, my first big interview was like basically interviewing Michael Bean in person. And I had one of those SNL moments where it's like, uh, do you remember when you were in Aliens kind of thing? <laughs> it's just like, like that guy just oozes personality. And I did think he that remember? Like, uh, yeah, he did. It was, okay. it was pretty embarrassing, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, but like, you know, and he wasn't even the first choice. James Ramar from the Warriors and, you know, the Gargoyle segment and Tales from the Dark Side was Hicks originally. You know, so like Bean came in late in the game, but you have him, you have uh, Bill Paxton, you have so many great actors in those movies, in the movie that it's it's easy to kind of get on board with the characters because you really like the people that play them and they do such a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I love Jeanette Goldstein and she yeah. plays Rattlesnake in Near Dark and I'm just like, yes, <laughs> like when she plays Vasquez, like she's a great character in uh, Aliens and mm-hmm. getting Lance Henderson in there and yeah. They're all memorable characters with yeah. all really memorable lines as you're as you're watching. Yeah, I mean Cameron really takes the he takes a good twenty minute chunk of the movie to really set up the crew so that you get a really good feel for them, who they are, and also just in the way like they stand, the way they posture, how separate they are from Burke, from Ripley, and especially from Lieutenant Gorman. Yes. You can see just in the way um, Hudson speaks with Gorman and just the way they're all slouched over when he's giving them their orders versus when Sergeant Opone speaks, who they respect, you know, and who they consider like part of their inside crew and who is out of it. And part of that, Cameron had Opone put the crew through like two weeks to a month of like basic training. 
um, except Gorman came on late, Bain came on late, and Weaver wasn't part of it. So when they were on set, you had this military crew of actors. They were their own unit, and they were already conditioned at that point to think of everybody else as kind of outside of them. Yeah, and I think I really love too, like you're saying how they have built that rose, those relationships among mm-hmm. each other, that respect with each other. And I love how Cameron really brings in the personalities on their garbs, mm-hmm. like based upon how they're wearing their their uniform. It's all rugged and like there's like personalized graffiti. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even notice it right away on like Vasquez's gun. Mm-hmm. It says adios and on... I think it's Drake. Drake's character mm-hmm. has like that the growl on it. And I was like, you, you get those extra elements of seeing who they are and their personalities are and their mm-hmm. relationships with one another. Yeah. I think that's cool because, I mean, Cameron trusted these people so much. You know, like in the making of, if I remember correctly, there was that part where they were talking about how there was like this cable of stuff. And Cameron gave them the opportunity to basically adorn their own costumes yeah. with whatever would speak to them. You know, and like to have that trust in your actor, you know what I mean? Like that's such a gamble. I mean, you know, Francis Ford Coppola let Nicolas Cage do Peggy Sue Got Married in a Gumby accent and that destroyed the movie, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like absolutely made it bomb. And he also like Coppola, like Marlon Brando showed up to Apocalypse Now like a (laughs) hundred pounds overweight. Coppola was like, oh shit, what am I going to do? Oh no. Shoot him him from the neck up, I guess, according to that movie. But you know what I mean? Like there's, there's trust that Cameron had. That, I mean, like you're saying, they brought their own personalities to that. And mm-hmm. I think that that makes those characters even more relatable than they would have been, you know, if he had it. And I think there's all like little things like Vasquez, who comes off as like really, I mean, basically the toughest of the crew, aside yeah. from maybe Bane overall. Um, when Hudson is kind of like, you know, Boston or Chops, all these, like, have you ever been mistaken for a man? You know, it's a moment where I think in lesser in a lesser writer's hands and a lesser performer's hands because let's face it bill paxton was was awesome and pretty much everything he was in um that could have come off as a really cringy moment but instead it's like a really empowering moment between vasquez and i forget the grunt that she's like really tight with i think it might be pharaoh um but you know you can see the bond that they have with with one another um and it shows, like, all right, these, these, this is a tight-knit crew. Then, one thing I've always read off of this movie, and uh, a, a few weeks ago I mentioned that I liked Alien more. And, and someone commented saying, well, you know, it's Aliens too uh, toxic, you know, too, full of too much toxic misogyny for you. And it's just like, you know, there, there is that setup. There is that setup. But at the same time, I feel like there's a playfulness to it to where it doesn't feel like, like Paxton's character really is that way. I feel like it's kind of like right. just, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I think like, that's I think so like, interesting that someone said that to you because like I'm watching the film and she's like, I don't see toxic, mm-hmm. neo misogynistic. Like yeah, they're guys, they're men. We're you know we're but like Vasquez and Pharaoh, the two mm-hmm. only women of the crew, were just as on equal par, and they had just oh, as they're, much they're more badass yeah. than the dudes <laughs> by far. Right? Yeah. Like, if Joe Bob Briggs wrote the script for Aliens, oh, like. You know, you know, God. like Vasquez would have been a mangled dick expert. You know, I mean, oh lord, just oh, shows. All right, do I have to edit that part? <laughs> so. um, oh my! All right, I just brought things to a 
thrashing. No, 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 no. no, no um, exactly. cool. Well, I was just going to say something about Hudson. Uh, uh, Jerry was saying this really interesting part about Hudson. Like, you know, he may act that way, but he's not really that way. And we do see that in the film as his character goes from like, I am all big and this is nothing. Mm -hmm. This is just a bug hunt. And he's like, I'm terrified. Let's yeah. get out of here. Like he's showing like, I'm afraid of all this, yeah. right? So, I, I also think that uh, what Aliens does right and I mean absolutely no disrespect to any of our listeners or anyone that serves in the military whatsoever. Like I have relatives that do, most of my uncles did, so nothing but respect. But I think what Aliens does is shows that arrogance that a lot of military people have. Mm -hmm. That like, I'm going to go in, shoot the shit out of everything because I'm a soldier. This is what I do, you know, kind of thing, you know. And I think it speaks to the parallels of like Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I mean, let's be honest, we ran right into battle for something that we had no business doing. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think that the aliens, it's very much that. It shows the arrogance of these people that think, you know, oh, we got superior firepower. We got guns. We're going to destroy everything. Yeah. And what happens? They get destroyed. They lose their lives because they have that arrogance and they're not prepared for what they're going up against. And then once again, you have that element of the higher ups not giving the people on the front lines the information they need to know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I, that whole scene where Lieutenant Gorman turned, like they just like Ripley and um, whoever else was there, a bishop figure out like, oh, if they shoot anything in there, this could cause a nuclear reaction. And so they tell us to Gorman. And instead of telling a, a pwn to tell his crew, like, hey, don't shoot your weapons because it could cause this. He just says, take all the ammunition away. Just take yep. all the ammunition away. Firepower only. Why not explain that to your crew? Why not let them know that if they do shoot guns or if they keep the guns they have, the bullets they had, this could be potentially much more dangerous. Why not share that with your crew and create that bond of trust? But he doesn't. Mm -hmm. He doesn't tell them anything. No, they're they're expendable to Waylon Utah. Yeah. And I think that that's a recurring theme throughout the whole right. series. I mean, even the end of Alien 3. They pretend that they care about Ripley, but they don't. They care about the alien inside of them. Right. Well, you see at multiple points during Aliens, you have like Burke as well as the members of the uh, Weyland-Yutani board. They put everything not in the cost of human lives, but an economic cost. Like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, we have, you know, the Nostromo cost like $40 million. Like you did $40 million of damage. Yeah. When Ripley comes up with the idea of nuking the planet, Burke is like, wait a minute, we have x amount of billions invested in this facility right now we just can't go ahead and bomb it like we don't have that authority to think of the investment at this point they know that all the humans are dead that the planet is essentially uninhabitable for human life but they're still worried about the economic cost that it would be to mm -hmm. do something like this so yeah that's it's never about yeah, like I said, the Marines are expendable. The workers on LV-26, 426 are expendable. The only thing that's not expendable is the actual facilities themselves because of the cost yeah. of building and manning them. And the totally. money that he's going to get from getting this alien species back to Earth mm -hmm. and getting the special weapons unit. And he's like, think of the money, right? So at the mm -hmm. end of the day, he's like, I will get Newt and Ripley yeah. impregnated and I will kill the rest of this crew mm -hmm. just to get those greens and to keep our investment. Yeah. Yep. And he assumes that Ripley will go along with it at first. He's like the Ted DiBiase of the Aliens franchise. <laughs> everybody everybody has a price. Uh, well, just... who's the Virgil? Can you be your own Virgil? Because Burke is so <laughs> ineffective. <true>. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Jen, you mentioned the Vietnam War. 
Jerry, and what I find one of the more interesting things between Alien and Aliens, or really the period that these movies are made, um, Alien is made during a time where there's tremendous distrust in the United States government. You're coming off of Watergate. You're coming off a contentious civil rights movement. You're coming off of Deep Throat. You're coming off of like losing a war for the first time, really. Uh, and the first time that a war is televised. So, you know, Joe and Johnny Sixpack or your nuclear family sitting around the television at night are seeing these images being broadcast home of all the atrocities of war. And now it's no longer, like you said before, John Wayne, it's no longer John Wayne rallying the troops around the flag and saying, let's go get the bad guy. It is very much, hey, this is hell right now. Um, the movies that came out of this period, like Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, Taxi Driver, very much examine the cost of war on the individual psyche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to Aliens, we are knee deep in the 80s. You have Ronald Reagan as president espousing this shining city on a hill. Um, as a country, we're feeling really good about ourselves and we're re-examining the war in a much different way. You have movies like Red Dawn that come out in, was it 84, 85, where we now, the Americans, are that ragtag group of, of guerrilla war fighters taking on a much better equipped army and like a feel good, where like high schoolers basically defeat the whole communist army of China. <laughs> amazing to me i mean it is patrick swayze you know, so. you know maybe maybe high schoolers are a, a lot more uh evolved where where you two are from Ooh. but in in the tulare county of california dude our high schoolers can't even dude. they can't do shit let alone take on a whole army i had eighth graders emailing me yesterday <laughs> i put in the subject of an email what time i was doing a cahoots for the kids i counsel <laughs> i'm like Friday at 2.30, cahoots with prizes. And I got 10 emails from eighth graders. <laughs> what time is it oh, going no. down? And I'm like, my God. Will there be prizes? <laughs> oh, my God. So we are definitely, if we're invaded tomorrow and expecting students to save us, uh, I welcome my foreign overlords <laughs> right now. Um, what's interesting <laughs> Um, Al Matthews, who played a pwn in this, has a little behind-the-scenes interview, and it's presented as a positive thing, but looking at it now, it really chilled me, where he's saying, like, because he was training all of them, he goes, one of the things these guys did that pissed me off, like, their fingers were on the trigger, and as a soldier, you know, like, I would just go into soldier mode, and if I saw someone's finger on the trigger, I'm going to take that gun and shove it down their throat. And he said that over and over again. Um, very much showing a guy that was still feeling the aftershocks of being in battle and seeing, because he was still living that war in his head, even when he was yeah. on set. So he was presenting it as this really, like, you know, Hoorah, look what a badass I am. I was seeing that as like, this poor dude, man, still thinks he's in the fucking patties overseas and just like how horrible that must be to live life like that. Oh, no, I, you know what's funny is I know exactly what you're talking about, that section of the interview, and I've always gotten the same exact mm -hmm. reading as you, same exact one. Uh, my uncle uh, would, 
most of my uncles were in Vietnam, but my uncle went and it messed him up so much that when he got back, he was so screwed up by what had happened to him and all of his friends that everything just kind of like everything messed him up to the point where he automatically just reenlisted again, just to go back over there. Cause that's all the familiarity mm-hmm. he had, mm-hmm. you know, like war does things to people. It changes people. And I can't imagine being L Matthews, kind of i mean not even what 10 15 years removed from that mm-hmm. having you know what i mean like it, it's such an interesting thing to think of like basically putting like actors mm-hmm. through something and and you know it's not taken as serious as you know the real thing right and to me like this is the era of rambo this is like what if we just send stallone back to vietnam he could win the war on his own you know it's that era of filmmaking and cameron is definitely tweaking that idea here like you are meant to root for the Marines overall, and you're meant to feel for them when they are picked off one by one. Um, But at the same time, I think Cameron is very much tweaking that idea of American exceptionalism and this idea that like might makes right at that point. And it continues that theme very much, um, very much present and alien that this idea of manifest destiny and all of these unknown territories exist for us to conquer. Those, those days are long gone now. Well, I, I think that kind of speaks up on something that I think we started talking about uh, before we started recording and, and something you mentioned on Twitter, uh, you know, that there can be a case made that the xenomorphs aren't the bad guys in aliens. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that way. You know, yeah, we're supposed to follow these soldiers and, you know, Ripley's definitely our protagonist and, you know, the Xenomorph and the Queen, they're the antagonist. But that being said, if you really think about it, their planet is the one that's being invaded. The first film, one of them was basically, you know, they were invaded. One of them found its way onto the ship and, you know, it did what it's naturally supposed to do. This movie, they were invaded by the soldiers you know, I'm, yeah, the aliens are dangerous, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, they're murderous, they're dangerous, but they're also just being themselves on their home planet, and people show up shooting them, you know, why wouldn't they attack? Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I, I completely agree with you, Jerry, I saw the same thing watching this film a second time around, being like, yeah, the aliens aren't bad, because they're intelligent, they're an intelligent species, they're doing what they're naturally supposed to do, you know, uh, populate and grow and continue on with uh, their lives and their, you know, moving on with their species. And then here we are, we have this um, Marine Corps that comes in and like, yeah, we're going to do some bug extermination. And they talk about it like this is something they always do all the time because it comes up a couple of times being like, what kind of mission is this? Is this this or is this bug extermination? And they, so they see the aliens as lesser. They see them as bugs that we need to wipe out and take back our colony. But at the end of the day, the aliens are just doing what they're supposed to be doing. And of course they're going to fight back. Of course they're going to attack because they've been invaded. They've been abducted in some way, shape, or form. I've always thought that Waylon Yutani, the corporation, and Burke, definitely Burke, kind of reminds me of those people uh, growing up that would take you and a friend of yours and say awful things about your friend to you, say awful things about you to your friend, and try to make you guys fight. Do you know what I mean? I feel like Waylon Yutani basically took these soldiers put them on the alien's planet, gave them their mission, and was just like, have at it, you know? And I think it's interesting, and definitely I think it makes the film even more interesting to watch uh, kind of like having that perspective of, you know, they both think they're right. 
you know, the, the queen thinks she's in the right for protecting her, her eggs. You know, Ripley and the soldiers, they think they're in the right for destroying that. You know, and it, it, I think it speaks on, uh, you know, I think it speaks on war. I think it speaks on so much, even in this day and age. You know, everyone thinks they're right in war. Everyone thinks they're right in whatever battle they're doing. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting take on it, I think. Burke is such an intriguing villain because everything is about moral relativism with him. You can see his, I mean, you can just see his stance shift based on whatever opportunity presents itself. You Mm -hmm. see early on him kind of like cozying up to Ripley once she is first discovered. Um, And then you can see him kind of drop her like a hot potato after her trial. You can see him after saying like, well, yeah, of course we're not going there to exploit anything at all. Like we're not there to make any money, but the second he sees, you know, number one, he has to cover his own ass because he realizes that, oh God, it's going to come out that I'm the one that sent these people to go investigate the ship. Um, Mm -hmm. But also like I can make a few bucks off of this too. Yeah. I I had an interesting question of something that I was thinking about with the film. Because we know from 57, 58 years that the Whaling Corporation, they knew about the species of the alien because we knew Ash and Mother, like they were programmed. They, they needed to make a stop by this certain planet to get what they need, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we were assuming that information would carry on 58 years later in the, the Whaling Corporation. Like, oh, here's another opportunity for us to be able to get this species that we've been trying to hunt for. And because you see them get onto this space station on the colony and they go into a med lab and there's specimens of the of the face hugger and it's like are these specimens like so they, they send these colonists to this planet particularly to get these aliens to start doing experimentation on them or is it just like oh we know we're going to colonize and this is just a happy coincidence that we found these aliens and now we're testing them so we never actually communicated this i took it as the latter i took okay. it that they sent um the, the um crew down there to terraform the planet and then once the ship was discovered they went into full-on um discovery mode at that point like oh we found these things wait a minute isn't that what this person ripley told us about um and i don't know if they found them before or after her quote-unquote trial or debriefing um but by that point they knew they had something on their hands and they were experimenting with it see um, go ahead i'm sorry i didn't interrupt you no, I was going to say that I've, I've always felt the opposite. You know, uh, Ash talking to Mother and Alien, there's no way that those transmissions wouldn't have been found, gotten their way back to Wayland. You know what I mean? Like, they knew what was going on as Alien was going on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. They knew exactly what they were doing. And the fact that it blew up, I think that they were betting on Ripley not surviving that. Yeah. They thought they would never have to deal with it. I think they knew exactly what they were doing. And I think that having received those transmissions that Ash gave Mother in the first film, I feel like Waylon, uh, the corporation, I feel like they 100% did that just to discover what those transmissions would have told them that were found. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because, I mean, like all that information had to be sent back to the, the company as it was happening. Well, they had some information prior, right? Because like we, they must have known about the species, the the fact to have Ash have that mission in him to go to this like colony, the LV-426, find that ship and take back whatever Mm -hmm. was found on it. Like he had that information somehow before. So like the Whaling Corporation, 
now, now, of course, now I'm getting into my whole like connection to Alien Covenant. So I'm like, okay, back up, back no. up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I have always taken it as that Wayland Utani said, if we find something, everything else becomes expendable. We know that there are things out there. We don't know exactly what it is. I think by the by the time of Aliens, um, I took it as like they f- discovered the ship and started experimenting right away on the alien species and the facehuggers, um, but didn't quite know what they had. What mm-hmm. they had. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. Okay, so I guess my last question: Do we have anything else, or is that a good? I think I'm good. All right. So here's my last question. And I think it's the one that people wrestle with. And I think we're all on the same team here, but alien or aliens. Ooh, I want one. You guys go first. Uh, Okay. I'll go first. I will say alien. I, Mm -hmm. for me, I feel like this film is too action oriented at times. At times feels a little comical in certain points. So I really enjoy the horror aspects that come from the Alien series, Alien, the first one, and then we get to see elements of that in um, in the orig- in the second one, but not as much. And I sometimes I feel like the perfect nuclear family and the whole kind of motherhood aspect of Ripley sometimes feels a little overkill. Even though I'm like, yes, you can be a mother and you can be strong and powerful, uh, it's kind of like you you see it coming and you're like, okay, this is going to happen. Um, but however, like. I do love that there's an element to this film of aliens where you get to know more of the mythology of the xenomorph and you get to see that they are clearly an intelligent species with a purpose and with a way of life. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, totally. To me, it's uh, a- alien. Uh, to me, it's also alien. Um, mm-hmm. Watching these movies again, what struck me was the scope and the scale of what Ridley Scott and H.R. Giger created. When... Kane and Dallas and Lambert step off of the Nostromo onto LV-426 and you see the derelict. You see this planet shrouded in this like acid dust. When you see them walking the um, walking the halls of the derelict and they come upon the space jockey, I get completely lost in that world. It mm-hmm. looks something so far above and beyond anything that I've ever seen. And then when you get into the nitty gritty details of the Nostromo, it looks like such a, we talked about this a lot last week about how alien looked like a real lived in world. When I watch aliens as great as Cameron's eye for detail is as great as the action sequences are, I never think that I'm not watching something on a movie set. Um, it is as bigger as Aliens is, as in there's more action, there's more aliens, it's longer, um, there's a bigger cast. As bigger as Aliens is, the scope of the movie feels so much smaller to me. Um, when they're going down the hallway, I never. I think they are in a factory in Britain. I never really get lost in the world like I do with Alien. Um, it feels like very much a mid-1980s world transposed to the future. Um, mm-hmm. Even things like when they are... When you see what the aliens have done to the halls, where they've kind of change them a bit so you kind of have that alien coating on all the walls overall 
it just doesn't look real to me. Yeah. Um, I never get lost in that world. And also at times it feels very sterile. It's a movie like when I'm, when I'm watching them in the lab environment, it feels like a more sterile movie to me. So I, and I admit I'm, I have a bias. I'm more of a horror movie guy than an action movie guy. Um, but for that reason, I always prefer alien to aliens. I will get into mine in just a second, but I am seriously about to pee my pants. So just give okay. me like, give me like 90 seconds. One second. All right. <laughs> do that. I love aliens like I've, I've always loved the movie like I have a lot of fun watching it but for me it's alien without question uh you know not because I mean like I said earlier you know someone mentioned reevaluating it you know Jerry must like alien because it's not as toxic as the second one uh which isn't the case I, I don't see that in aliens to be honest but I think I, I prefer alien because it's just more effective for me you know, like, I love action movies. I mean, Die Hard's one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, I could watch Cobra 24-7. But there's something magical about Ridley Scott's movie that, you know, with, without any disrespect to James Cameron or anyone involved, I feel like the, what's so magical about the first Alien is kind of brushed aside in James Cameron's movies. You know, I like, I like quiet films. I like movies mm-hmm. that draw you in. And you know what I mean? Like that, that they get under your skin and they live there and they breathe there. Whereas aliens, as much as I love it, it's very much a six or seven year old Jerry watching movies, wanting stuff to get blown up and exploding. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the character development isn't there as much as alien. In my opinion, I think, I think there's just so much to love about the first film that the second one, as entertaining as it is, as much of a action classic that it deserves to be called, it is. I, I feel like it's just not on the same level as the first film for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with everything you said there. It's, yeah. again, apples and oranges in terms of the genre. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not to say, like, Aliens is terrible, because I think we obviously have a lot, all of us here have a lot of affection for the movie um but it just in terms of like where we stand alien is one of the great masterworks of horror and that's very much my bag so yeah i agree so jessica before we go tonight um tell our listeners a little bit about i spit on your podcast and what they can look forward to so yeah, I Spin On Your Podcast is a monthly horror podcast done with uh, the two spinsters, myself and Kelly, where we uh, take various themes of a month of various horror films and discuss them in depth with some research and passion. And so this month we'll be recording our episode on werewolves. We'll be looking at masculinity in the films of The Wolfman from 1941 and Dog Soldiers from 2002. So we're looking forward to bringing that out and talking about the werewolf. Excellent. And this sounds great there's been like a lot of work done to your site as well. Like it's more than just the podcast. I think that's what I immediately gravitate towards. Yeah. But obviously there is the spinsters of horror.com. 
Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about what's been going on over on your site, what, who's writing for it, and maybe a couple posts that we should be looking out for? Uh, yeah, we always do like, um, as the webmaster for us, I'm always doing trying to do major revamps and uh, amp it up. But we definitely have our blog post on there. So Kelly has her taboo terrors. Mm -hmm. And she just recently uh, came out talking about she did a review on beyond or oh, oh no she didn't get mad at me beyond red mm -hmm. <laughs> where she did an interview with jesse seisman which is on extreme horror and the history of extreme mm -hmm. horror um we have blog posts from guest blog posts so uh jen from over at the horror virgin um we've had uh joe and uh joshua anderson from um sorry he from um Nightmare on Film Street, who's written mm -hmm. for us. So we definitely like to put out calls to different people to contribute to our website based on the theme that we're doing of the month. And then I myself have my own blog posts, uh, monthly blog posts that come out based on the theme of what we're talking mm -hmm. about. And then we have monthly picks and we really like to support the uh, community, the horror community. So we have our community finds where various, um, we like to highlight various uh, projects and people that we meet throughout this journey and talk about and leave people that way. So please yeah, check out the horror community page. Uh, we call it our coven, uh, mm -hmm. coven of horror so that people can go and check all the amazing people that we've met in this journey so far. And I know we have the pod and the pendulum up there as well. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. And where can listeners find uh, you and uh, Kelly online? Uh, we are on Facebook at Spinsters of Horror. We're also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters and Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. Excellent. So Jerry, what do we have? Thank you so much for joining us too. Thank you so much. Yeah, for having yeah, me. definitely. Great. You Great and uh, hopefully you and Kelly can join us again when we pick another franchise that you want to do with us. We're yeah. always happy to have you. On. I was like. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, Jerry, what do we have next week? Oh, boy. Uh, well, we, we have our Alien 3 episode, uh, but we're also working on a couple side things just for fun. Mm -hmm. uh, we got confirmation, uh, and this is 100% going to happen, so I do feel comfortable saying it. Uh, we're going to have a really weird side episode on The Lodge. Mm -hmm. But the weird part is, it's going to be with two musicians as guests. Uh, two of my favorite bands of all time uh, are going to appear on the show because they like horror films as well. Uh, Chris Dudley from Under Oath and Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die. They are going to come on our show and talk about The Lodge, which is a movie that they both like and really want to talk mm -hmm. about and a movie that completely fucked me up. So yeah, I'm I so excited for that. I'm like looking the, forward to seeing that. Yeah, I heard it's like the feel-good horror movie of the year. Oh, like my. Really <laughs> I can't remember who wrote it. I can't remember who wrote the article. I, I don't know if it was Matt Donato, but it was somebody. And they didn't care for it much mm -hmm. because they said it just felt like A24 by numbers, like mm -hmm. almost like a parody of those movies. Mm -hmm. And I could kind of see that because it hits all those beats of like, you know, movies like Hereditary and The Witch yeah. and that kind of stuff. But that being said, Man, that movie messed me up. So yeah, we're gonna have them on there. Uh, we're working with other people. Uh, you know, so far he wants to do it, but we'll see if you know it works out. Charles uh, De La Zerica, who did all the special mm -hmm. features for the Alien films, who directed Dangerous Days, making Blade Runner, which is my favorite documentary of all time, of all time. He wants to be on the show to talk about uh, the Alien series. So we're working on things. So mm -hmm. that's what we have. You have that. We should have another script reading. Um, yes. We keep trying to make one happen and like just things kind of pop up or it's not able to happen on the night that we all want to record. So we're going to keep trying to do that. It's, you know, because people are kind of not locked up quite as much right now. I think they want to see some sunshine. So it's 
harder to pin people down sometimes. Um, we're going to continue our coverage of the Chattanooga Film Fest, which has been awesome. Like I'll probably have another bonus episode just with a recap of what people should be looking out for. But I really think that this, the way they're doing it where it's an online festival because you just can't safely go to movie theaters right now. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I've gotten to watch about eight or nine movies in the past day or two. Um, and a couple of them have been amazing. Like Homewrecker is now one of my favorite uh, movies of the year starring, wow. Al- uh, starring Alex Esso from Starry Eyes. Um, nice. yeah, it is very much like think single white female. Um, what about, it's almost like, what about Bob in some ways? Um, (laughs) (laughs) with like two female characters where like one is like, I cannot get rid of this person. Um, a little bit like inside, it's like very funny up until the point that it's not like it has a third act that really, there's a moment that really hit me in the gut and is very much in my what makes me uncomfortable in horror moments. Um, And it's the second film I've seen this year where uh, Lisa Loeb's stay is an integral part of the third act. So I know it's crazy, isn't it? See, I don't think that anyone can beat After Midnight. Oh, I don't think so either. That's, yeah. Oh my God, that was I my am, favorite moment. You know, I am ride or die with anything Jeremy Gardner does. Yeah. Um, I watched a documentary yesterday as part of the festival called Red, White, and Wasted. Uh, it is the scariest thing I've seen all year because it's very much about um, rednecks in Florida and like oh, MAGA really? and like the MAGA crowd in Florida. And you just see how that mindset develops you see how it kind of perpetuates from one generation to another and it's a world that is so completely foreign from my own um Mm -hmm. it was it it was the scare and it's presented without comment basically uh it's pretty much they let the cameras roll and let the participants speak for themselves and my god like the racism the misogyny the homophobia is all on full display and there's no real, there's never any like shame for it. It's all like, nope, this is just the way it is. So that was terrifying to me. And I'm really glad I got to see that because that was just, it reminded me how important this November is going to be. Um, Yeah. So we got a review, speaking of which was really fun. We got a review and for the most part, it was really good, but like the one criticism and it was a really well thought out, um, review and i think the the person put a lot of thought and a lot of energy into it and he said you know i like how they cover the movies but they sometimes are far too much like left-leaning social justice warrior woke types and i mean i don't know what to tell somebody that's kind of just who we are like i work in the mental health field and public education so that's kind of like the kind of people that would gravitate towards that line of work um jerry i know is involved in a number of social causes so we definitely appreciate different view types besides our own and we're always open for conversation but you know art is inherently political and art inherently yes. makes political statements like yes. yeah and i mean i understand coming from the, the approach of you know don't talk politics don't talk religion but i i do feel like especially in 2020 
uh, those things are kind of mm-hmm. imp- it's impossible not to tackle in some form, mm-hmm. especially when the horror genre I think is one of the most metaphorical genres mm-hmm. around yeah. to where yeah. like we try to read in and we try to like really evaluate the films that we're talking mm-hmm. about. So naturally, if that's something that we're passionate about, you know, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I grew up in a very right wing Christian family. You know, I, I, I felt out of place my entire life, you know, and when I became an adult, I got into politics, I got into different religions, I got into different mm-hmm. belief systems, and that's just who I am. You know, I, I, I appreciate anyone giving us good, like, reviews or whatsoever, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm definitely not coming from the way of saying, well, get used to it, because it's not mm-hmm. like that. You know, I try not to inject my personal beliefs in this stuff, but I think one way or another, it, they will bleed into right. it in some way. It's very much like I've, we've made it a point from day one not to be a recap show. And if somebody, you know, because there are plenty of podcasts that are far better than I would be, it's saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and making it interesting and something that people would want to listen to. That's not something I'm good at. I think where we are good is we do, we do the research, we bring our own points of view into it, and we examine things you know, through a certain political or sociological or really kind of psychological lens overall. And for some people, if that's your bag, that's great. We might not be for everybody. We do appreciate anyone that's ever given us a listen, interacted with us on Twitter, or left us a review. So that said, here is- Actually, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it actually Mm -hmm. goes with what you're saying. It's something I forgot to talk about real quick. Uh, Without going into detail, I mean, there was a lot of kind of uh, anger and stuff going on on Twitter lately. And I kind of felt like me, like just saying that I'm not okay with something is one thing, but maybe doing something to try to help is another. Uh, I, I released a new EP this week and some new music, and for the, an entire month, I'm donating 100% of anything made on any music I've done uh, to the Trevor Project. Oh, so I, I, I feel okay. like I feel mm-hmm. like in in a time where we can say that we're not okay with racism, we can say we're not okay with you know so many things. I th- I think that maybe you know action speaks louder. So mm-hmm. I mean, just I mean it, it, I hate doing self-promotion but i i feel like the trevor project's a really good cause so that being said that's my last political thing i'll say on this episode All or right. you know social so there that is well with that note listeners thank you so much please follow us on twitter at pod and pendulum leave us a review wherever you get your podcast five star reviews are more appreciated but you know obviously We want everyone to speak their truth about how they feel about us. So next week, we're back with uh, returning guests, Matt Bremar and Terry Messner. We're going to be talking Alien 3. And I think it's going to be another one to strap yourselves in for. So until then, everyone have a great week.